Chapter Four of Whispering Smith by Frank Spearman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. George McLeod. McLeod was an exception to every tradition that goes to make up a mountain railroad man. He was from New England, with a mild voice and a hand that roughened very slowly. McLeod was a classmate of Morris Blood's at the Boston Tech and the acquaintance begun there continued after the two left school, with a scattering fire of letters between the mountains and New England, as few and as far between as men's letters usually scatter after an ardent school acquaintance. There were just two boys in the McLeod family, John and George. One had always been intended for the church, the other for science. Somehow the boys got mixed in their cradles, or, what is the same matter, in their assignments, and John got into the church. For George, who ought to have been a clergyman, nothing was left but a long engineering course for which, after he got it, he appeared to have no use. However, it seemed a little late to shift the life assignments. John had the pulpit and appeared disposed to keep it, and George was left, like a New England farm, to wonder what had become of himself. It is nevertheless odd how matters come about. John McLeod, a prosperous young clergyman, stopped on a California trip at Medicine Bend to see Brother George's classmate and something of a real western town. He saw nothing sensational. It was there, but he did not see it. But he found both hospitality and gentlemen, and, if surprised, was too well-bred to admit it. His one-day stop ran on to several days. He was a guest at the Medicine Bend Club, where he found men who had not forgotten the Harvard Greek plays. He rode in private cars and ate antelope steak grilled by Glover's own darky boy, who had roasted Buffalo Hump for the Grand Duke Alexis as far back as 1871, and still hashed his brown potatoes in ragtime and with the sun breaking clear over the frosty tablelands a ravenous appetite and a day's shooting in prospect the rhythm had a particularly cheerful sound john was asked to occupy a medicine bin pulpit and before sunday the fame of his laugh and his marksmanship had spread so far that henry markover the yale cowboy rode in thirty-two miles to hear him preach in leaving john mcleod in a seventh heaven of enthusiasm over the high country, asked Morris Blood why he could not find something for George out there. And Blood, not even knowing the boy wanted to come, wrote for him, and asked Bucks to give him a job. Possibly, being over-solicitous, George was nervous when he talked to Bucks. Possibly the impression left by his big, strong, bluff brother John made against the boy at all events bucks after he talked with george shook his head i could make a first-class railroad man out of the preacher morris but not out of the brother yes i've talked with him he can't do anything but figure elevations and by heaven we can't feed our own engineers here now so george found himself stranded in the mountains morris blood was cut up over it but george mcleod took it quietly i'm no worse off here than i was back there morris blood at that plucked up courage to ask george to take a job in the cold springs mines and george jumped at it 
It was impossible to get a white man to live at Cold Springs after he could save money enough to get away. So George was welcomed as an assistant superintendent at the number eight mine, with no salary to speak of, and all the work. In one year everybody had forgotten him. Western men, on the average, show a higher heart temperature than Eastern men, but they are tolerably busy people and have their own troubles. Be patient, Morris Blood had said to him. Sometime there will be more railroad work in these mountains. Then, perhaps, your darn engineering may come into play. I wish you knew how to sell cigars. Meantime, McLeod stuck to the mine and insensibly replaced his eastern tissue with western. In New England he had been carefully molded by several generations of gentlemen, but never baked hard. The mountains put the crust on him. For one thing, the sun and wind, best of all hemlocks, tanned his white skin into a tough all-American leather, seasoned his muscles into rawhide sinews, and, without burdening him with an extra ounce of flesh, sprinkled the red through his blood till, though thin, he looked apoplectic. Insensibly, too, something else came about. George MacLeod developed the rarest of gifts of temperament, even among men of action, the ability to handle men. In Cold Springs, indeed, it was a case either of handling or of being handled. MacLeod got along with his men, and with the rough element among them, usually through persuasion, but he proved, too, that he could inspire confidence even with a club. One day, coming down special from Bear Dance, Gordon Smith, who bore the nickname Whispering Smith, rode with President Bucks in the privacy of his car. The day had been long, and the alkali lay light on the desert. The business in hand had been canvassed, and the troubles put aside for chicken, coffee, and cigars, when Smith, who did not smoke, told the story of something he had seen the day before at Cold Springs that pleased him. The men in number eight mine had determined to get rid of some Italians, and after a good deal of rowing had started in to catch one of them and hang him. They had chosen a time when MacLeod, the assistant superintendent of the mine, was down with mountain fever. It was he who had put the Italians into the mine. He had already defended them from injury, and would be likely, it was known, to do so again if he were able. On this day a mob had been chasing the Dagos, and at a length captured one. They were running him down street to a telephone pole when the assistant superintendent appeared in scant attire and stopped them. Taking advantage of the momentary confusion, he hustled their victim into the only place of refuge at hand, a billiard hall. The mob rushed the hall. In the father's corner the unlucky Italian, bleeding like a bullock and insane with fright, knelt, clinging to MacLeod's shaky knees. In trying to make the back door the two had been cut off, and the sick boss had got into a corner behind a pool table to make his stand. In his pocket he had a pistol, knowing that to use it meant death to him as well as to the wretch he was trying to save. Fifty men were yelling in the room. They had rope, hatchets, a sprinkling of guns, and whiskey enough to burn the town, and in the corner behind a pool table stood the mining boss with mountain fever, the dago, and a broken billiard cue. 
Bucks took the cigar from his mouth, leaned forward in his chair, and stretched his heavy chin out of his neck as if the situation now promised a story. The leader, Smith continued, was the mine blacksmith, a strapping Welshman, from whom MacLeod had taken the Italian in the street. The blacksmith had a revolver, and was crazy with liquor. MacLeod singled him out in the crowd, pointed a finger at him, got the attention of the men, and lashed him across the table with his tongue until the blacksmith opened fire on him with his revolver. MacLeod all the while shaking his finger at him and abusing him like a pickpocket. The crowd couldn't believe its eyes, Gordon Smith concluded, and MacLeod was pushing for the blacksmith with his cue when Kennedy and I squirmed through the front and relieved the tension. MacLeod wasn't hit. What is that mining man's name? asked Bucks, reaching for a message clip. MacLeod. First name, continued Bucks mechanically. George. Bucks looked at his companion in surprise. Then he spoke, and a feeling of self-abasement was reflected in his words. George MacLeod, he echoed. Did you say George? Why, I must know that man. I turned him down once for a job. He looked so peaceable I thought he was too soft for us. The president laid down his cigar with a gesture of disgust. And yet there really are people along this line that think I'm clever. I haven't judgment enough to operate a trolley car. It's a shame to take the money they give me for running this system, Gordon. Hanged if I didn't think that fellow was too soft. He called the flagman over. Tell Whitmire we will stay at Cold Springs tonight. I thought we were going through to Madison Bend, suggested Smith as the train man disappeared. McLeod, repeated Bucks taking up his cigar and throwing back his head in a cloud of smoke. Yes, assented his companion. But I'm going through to Medicine Bend, Mr. Bucks. Do. How am I to do it? Take the car and send it back tomorrow on number three. Thank you, if you won't need it tonight. I shan't. I'm going to stay at Cold Springs tonight and hunt up McLeod. But that man is in bed in a very bad way. You can't see him. He's going to die. No, he isn't. I'm going to hunt him up and have him taken care of. That night, Bucks, in the twilight, was sitting by MacLeod's bed, smoking and looking him over. Don't mind me, he said when he entered the room, lifted the ill-smelling lamp from the table, and, without taking time to blow it out, pitched it through the open window. I heard you were sick, and just looked in to see how they were taking care of you. Wilcox, he added, turning to the nurse he had brought in, a barber who wanted to be a railroad man, and had agreed to step into the breach and nurse MacLeod, and have a box of miners' candles sent up from the roundhouse. We have some down there. If not, buy a box and send me the bill. MacLeod, who after the rioting had crawled back to bed with a temperature of a hundred and five degrees, knew the barber, but felt sure that a lunatic had wandered in with him and immediately bent his feeble mental energies on plans for getting rid of a dangerous man. When Buck sat down by him and continued talking at the nurse, MacLeod caught nothing of what was said until Buck's turned quietly toward him. They tell me, MacLeod, you have the fever. The sick man, staring with sunken eyes, rose half on his elbow in astonishment to look again at his visitor. 
but Bucks eased him back with an admonition to guard his strength. McCloud's temperature had already risen with the excitement of seeing a man throw his lamp out of the window. Bucks, meantime, working carefully to seem unconcerned and incensing McCloud with great clouds of smoke, tried to discuss his case with him as he had already done with the mine surgeon. McCloud, thinking it best to humor the crazy man, responded quietly. The doctor said yesterday, he explained, it was a mountain fever, and he wants to put me into an ice pack. Bucks objected vigorously to the ice pack. The doctor tells me that it's the latest treatment for that class of fevers in the Prussian army, answered McLeod feebly, but getting interested in spite of himself. That's a good thing, no doubt, for the Prussian army, replied Bucks. But, McLeod, in the first place, you're not a Dutchman. In the second, you've not got mountain fever, not in my judgment. McLeod, confident now that he had an insane man on his hands, held his peace. Not a symptom of mountain fever, continued Bucks calmly. You have what looks to me like gastritis. But the homeopaths, he added, have a better name for it. Is it stomatitis, McLeod? I forget. The sick man, confounded by such learning, determined to try one question, and, if he was at fault, to drag his gun from under his pillow and sell his life as dearly as possible. Summoning his waning strength, he looked hard at Bucks. Just let me ask you one question. I never saw you before. Are you a doctor? No, I'm a railroad man. My name is Bucks. McLeod rose half up in bed with amazement. They'll kill you if you lie here a week, continued Bucks, in just a week. Now I'll tell you my plan. I'll take you down in the morning in my car to Medicine Bend. This barber will go with us. There in the hospital you can get everything you need, and I can make you comfortable. What do you say? McLeod looked at his benefactor solemnly, but if hope flickered for an instant in his eyes, it soon died. Bucks said afterwards that he looked like a cold-storage squab, just pin-feathers and legs. Shave him clean, said he, and you could have counted his teeth through his cheeks. The sick man turned his face to the wall. It's kind enough, he muttered, but I guess it's too late. Bucks did not speak for some time. Twilight had faded above the hills, and only the candle lighted the room. Then the master of mountain men, grizzled and brown, turned his eyes again to the bed. McLeod was staring at the ceiling. "'We have a town of your name down on the plains, McLeod,' said Bucks, blowing away the cigar smoke after a long silence. "'It's one of our division points, and a good one.' "'I know the town.' responded McLeod. It was named after one of our family. I guess not. It was, though, said McLeod, wearily. I think, returned Bucks, you must be mistaken. The man that town was named after belonged to the fighting McLeods. That is my family. Then where's your fight? When I propose to put you into my car and pull you out of this, why do you say it's too late? It is never too late. McLeod made no answer, and Bucks ran on. For a man that worked out as well as you did yesterday in a trial heat with a billiard cue, I should say you could turn a handspring or two yet, if you had to. For that matter, if you don't want to be moved, I can run a spur in here to your door in three hours in the morning. 
By taking out the side wall, we can back the car right up to the bed. Why not? Or we can stick a few hydraulic jacks under the sills, raise the house, and push your bed right onto the observation platform. He got McLeod to laughing and lighted a fresh cigar. A framed photograph hung on one of the bare walls of the room, and it caught the eye of the railroad man. He walked close to it, disinfected it with smoke, brushed the dust from the glass, and examined the print. That looks like old Van Dyne College campus. Hanged if it doesn't. McLeod was watching him. It is a photograph of the campus. McLeod, are you a Van Dyne man? I did my college work there before I went to Boston. Bucks stood motionless. Poor little old Van Dyne. Why, my brother Sam taught at Van Dyne. No, you would not have known him. He's dead. Never before west of the Mississippi River have I seen a Van Dyne man. You're the first. He shook his head as he sat down again. It's crowded out now. No money, no prestige. Half-starved professors with their elbows out. The president working like a dog all the week and preaching somewhere every Sunday to earn five dollars. But by heaven they turned out men. Did you know Bug Robinson? He asked suddenly. He gave me my degree. Old Bug. He was Sam's closest friend, McLeod. It's good to see him getting the recognition he deserves, isn't it? Do you know I sent him an annual last year? Yes, sir. In one year I had the whole blooming faculty out here on a fossil expedition. But by heaven, McLeod, some of them look more like megatheriniums than what they dug up did. I heard about that expedition. I never got to college. I had to hustle. I'll get out of here before I tire you. Wilcox will be here all night, and my China boy is making some broth for you now. You'll feel better in the morning. Ten weeks later, McLeod was sent from Medicine Bend up on the short line as trainmaster, and on the short line he learned railroading. That's how I came here, said George McLeod to Farrell Kennedy a long time afterward at Medicine Bend. I had shriveled and starved three years out there in the desert. I lived with those cattle underground till I'd forgotten my own people, my own name, my own face. And Bucks came along one day with Whispering Smith and dragged me out of my coffin. They had it ordered, and it was being a small size and unhandy, as the undertaker said. I paid for it and told him to store it for me. Well, do you think I could ever forget either of those men, Farrell? McLeod's fortunes thus threw him first into the operating department of the mountain lines, but his heart was in the grades and the curves. To him the interest in the train work was the work of the locomotives toiling with the heavy loads up the canyons and across the uneven plateaus and through the deep gorges of the inner range, where the panting exhaust, choked between sheer granite walls, roared in a mighty protest against the burden put by the steep grades on the patient machines. In all the group of young men, then on the mountain division, obscure and unknown at the time, but destined within so few years to be scattered far and wide as constructionists with records made in the rebuilding operations through the Rocky Mountains, none was less likely to attract attention than McLeod. Bucks, who indeed could hardly be reckoned so much of the company as its head, was a man of commanding proportions physically. 
Like Glover, Bucks was a giant in statue, and the two men, when together, could nowhere escape notice. They looked, in a word, their part, fitted to cope with the tremendous undertakings that had fallen to their lot. Callahan, the chess player on the overland lines, the man who could hold large combinations of traffic movement constantly in his head, and by intuition reach the result of a given problem before other men could work it out, was, like Morris Blood, the master of tonnage, of middle age. But MacLeod, when he went to the mountain division, in youthfulness of features was boyish, and when he left he was still a boy, bronzed, but young of face in spite of a lifetime's pressure and worry crowded into three years. He himself counted this physical make-up as a disadvantage. It has embroiled me in no end of trouble, because I couldn't convince men I was in earnest until I made good in some hard way, he complained once to Whispering Smith. I never could acquire even a successful habit of swearing, so I had to learn to fight. When one day in Boney Street in Medicine Bend, he threw open the door of Marion Sinclair's shop, flung his hat sailing across the showcase with his war cry, and called to her in the back rooms, she thought he had merely run in to say he was in town. "'How do you do? What do you think? You're going to have an old boarder back?' he cried. I'm coming to Medicine Bend, superintendent of the division. Mr. McCloud, Marion Sinclair clasped her hands and dropped into a chair. Have they made you superintendent already? Well, I like that. Do you want them to wait until I'm gray-headed? Marion threw her hands to her own head. Oh, don't say anything about gray hairs. My head won't bear inspection. But I can't get over this promotion coming so soon. This whole big division? well i congratulate you very sincerely oh but that isn't it i suppose anybody will congratulate me but where am i to board have you a cook you know how i went from bad to worse after you left cold springs may i have my meals here with you as i used to there why i suppose you can yes if you can stand the cooking i have an apprentice mr dancing's daughter who does pretty well she lives here with me and is learning the business. But I shan't take as much as you used to pay me, for I'm doing so much better down here. Let me run that end of it, will you? I shall be doing better down here myself. They laughed as they bantered. Marion Sinclair wore gold spectacles, but they did not hide the delightful good nature in her eyes. On the third finger of her slender left hand she wore, too, a gold band that explained the gray in her hair at twenty-six. This was the wife of Murray Sinclair, whom he had brought to the mountains from her faraway Wisconsin home. Within a year he had broken her heart so far as it lay in him to do it, but he could not break her charm nor her spirit. She was too proud to go back when forced to leave him, and had set about earning her own living in the country to which she had come as a bride. She put on spectacles, she mutilated her heavy brown hair, and to escape notice and secure the obscurity that she craved, her name Marion became, over the door of her millinery shop and in her business, only M. Sinclair. Cold Springs, where Sinclair had first brought her when he had headquarters there as foreman of bridges, had proved a hopeless place for the millinery business, at least in the way that Marion ran it. 
the women that had husbands had no money to buy hats with and the women without husbands wore gaudy headgear and were of the kind that made marion's heart creep when they opened the shop door what was worse they were inclined to joke with her as if there must be a community of interest between a deserted woman and women who had deserted womanhood to this business marion would not cater and in consequence her millinery affairs sometimes approached collapse she could however cook extraordinarily well and with the aid of a servant-maid could always provide for a boarder or two perhaps a railroad man or a mine superintendent to whom she could serve meals and who like all mountain men were more than generous in their accounting with women among these standbys of hers was macleod macleod had always been her friend and when she left cold springs and moved to medicine bend to set up her little shop on bony street near fort she had lost him yet somehow to compensate marion for other cruel things in the mountains providence seemed to rise up a new friend for her wherever she went in medicine bend she did not know a soul but almost the first customer that walked into her shop and she was a customer worth while was dixie dunning of the crawling stone End of chapter four